What's poppin' everybody? Welcome back to the Black Hole Podcast. I am your host, Evan Malik McDonald. And this is a very powerful week um, for the for the podcast. Today, our guest is Ruby Johnston, who is a photographer. Actually, no, uh, is an artist. Ruby Johnston was racially profiled at Penn State and lost everything. And this is their tale. Uh, if anytime during the show you want to support them or follow them i will have those links in the description so peep that but i do hope y'all enjoy this episode maybe learn something from it and i will see you guys on the flip Black Hole Podcast. I'm here with Ruby uh, Johnson. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm. I can't complain. I, you know, I, you know, before we started recording, I uh, thanked you for being on the show. This is like absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I your, your story uh, needs to be told. It, you know, it touched me, right? Like, yeah, and it's unfortunately, unfortunately, a story that I've heard before. But it's just every time I hear something like this, it's just it's it's. You know, I, I, it just hits me, you know, but I guess, yeah. do you want to, do you want to tell the audience like a little about, a little bit about yourself and your whole thing, your situation, I guess, you know, what you do and I guess. Yeah. So, um, there's a short story and there's a long story. Which one should I start with? Oh, start with the long story. We're, we're here for the, for the, for the long run. The long run. All right. Um, so pretty much I am a Penn State student. Um, I started in 2016, started my freshman year in 2016. Um, this is actually really nice because I guess I can give all of the details that I left out in my video since I wasn't mm. trying to make it super long. So yeah, this is gonna be a long story, but I started the year that Donald Trump was elected as president. Um, so it was already like a little a weird environment for me to enter into. But um, before any of that happened, I joined a mentor mentee organization for POC students like my first week at Penn State uh, because it's a PWI. There's 44,000 students and only like 4.3% of them are self-identified as African-American. Mm. Um, so when you break that down it's sort of like say you have a class of 100 students only about four of them are going to look like you mm -hmm. but this is a university where oftentimes when you're a freshman the classes are more like 700 students so i found myself in classrooms that were full of 700 students and only about 20 to 30 familiar faces mm -hmm. which at times gets overwhelming so my first thing was to join a POC organization just so I had some roots on campus. Uh, it wasn't like a lost lost fish in a big pond. Um, so the organization that I joined was called Blueprint. I joined a couple others, one called WORDS, which stands for Writers to Organize, Writers Organizing and Representing Diverse Stories. Um, and then I joined Sovereign Magazine, which was the first magazine on campus for students of color. So freshman okay. year, right off the uh, bat, I got myself super involved in very POC-oriented extracurriculars. Um, by November, I was nominated for Freshman of the Year, which is pretty insane when you think about how there, our incoming freshman class was about 9,000 students or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it was from a POC organization. So of course you had to be a person of color to be nominated. But out of a couple thousand applicants, I was one of two nominees. So I felt like it was a pretty strong start. I'd really gotten my foot in the door. Right, um, right. And I was starting to be recognized on campus just as someone that was there to do good and make positive changes. Um, so then we get into Trump's election. It's closer to November. Mm. And I helped with a few of my friends that I met in the poetry organization words to organize a protest. Um, not necessarily 
directly against Donald Trump, but more about the culture uh, that was starting to be cultivated in America. And college campuses are like a microcosm of American politics. So you get some pretty radical people on both sides of the argument. Right, right. And we were protesting the blatant displays of hatred that were found on campus uh, right before Donald Trump's election. There were signs posted by the Nazi group at Penn State, which was hmm. just absolutely insane. There's a Nazi um, group? Yeah, there's a Nazi group at Penn wow. State. It's a very well-established group that a year later, we actually figured out a way to out a few of them hmm. um, to no success. They were still the heads of some of the most prominent clubs uh, and governments in Penn State. But aside from that, we were more just trying to make a statement that we are here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it was funny. By the end of the protest, the counter protest had actually formed against us where people were holding up Trump signs. And I spent like three hours that day not arguing, but talking with the people on the other side um, and just trying to level with them and try to understand why they were there, uh, what their point was, et cetera, et cetera. So that was pretty much my freshman year experience um, at Penn State. That's, the, uh, that's intense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was an intense start. Like what a year to like yeah. go to a university, especially one in the middle of Pennsylvania. Right, a lot right. of the students have never seen a black person before. Mm -hmm. It was it was um, a culture shock because I'm an inner city kid from Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So for my entire life, my schools were pretty much as diverse as you could ask for, like true diversity, 30%, 30%, 30%, and then a few um, just random categories. But when I went to Penn State, I was for the first time, and Philadelphia is like, it's like 48% or maybe 53%, something along that line, uh, African-American. Mm -hmm. So for my entire life, I was living very comfortably around people that looked like me. Um, and then when I went to Penn State, it was just completely different. So yeah. by my second semester at Penn State, I had become a TA for a race relations class and that was one of the classes that was about 700 students. But twice a week, they would break off into smaller groups. And I was one of the facilitators of the smaller groups. So my second semester at Penn State, I was basically taught how to facilitate conversations from a neutral standpoint, not to take sides, and how to get the truth out of pretty much anyone in order to have a productive conversation. So most of my students were Republican, Trump supporter, white frat brothers. Mm. And then a few of them would be like POC or LGBT. And a large part of it was me trying to get everyone in that room to understand each other. Um, and wow. I learned things from doing that that I wish I was taught in primary school, you know, it took me 18 years of my life to learn true communication skills. And it's only because I took an opportunity to become a TA. So when I realized that there were so many things that I needed to learn that I haven't before, I started really putting in more work to get there. Um, I'll speed up the story, but by sophomore year, um, I became a TA for a different class. I became a mentor for the organization that I had previously been a mentee in. I joined the executive board of all of the clubs that I had been members in the semester before. Um, I became a liaison for the Paul Robeson Cultural Center, which is pretty much the safe place on campus for students of color to go between classes. Mm -hmm. um, and it offers resources and stuff. I was also hired there. So I did their media and I organized events for them. With the help of my boss, I organized the first pep rally on campus for just for students of color during homecoming, because as you know, Penn State is a huge football school. Right, right. But when you go to those tailgates, when you go to those games, it's, it's all white faces. Right. Um, it's, and because everyone's blacked out drunk, it, becomes a very dangerous place 
for you to just be a minority walking around. So mm -hmm. we made a homecoming just for students of color, just to make a space in the football celebration for us. Um, uh, yeah, I became a TA to a separate class. I became an RA. Um, I spent pretty much all of my time not in class at the cultural center, having conversations with just fellow students, really getting a feel of the environment on campus and trying to figure out what I could do to heighten the experience for people of color on campus. Um, by junior year, I was acting as an RA. I had become the senior TA of a class that I was teaching. I became the editor-in-chief of Sovereign Magazine, which again is the first magazine on campus for students of color. Um, I became the senior media specialist at the Paul Robeson Cultural Center. There's just, what else, what else? Um, I helped make content for them, basically explaining the lack of diversity at Penn State, and that content got some traction and it, uh, it was introduced to the administration. And because of that video, they had certain meetings about their inclusivity and diversity approaches. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then the very next semester is when I was arrested. Um, uh, so while I was doing all of these things, I'm also a professional photographer and I did every event over the course of three years that any organization of color hosted. So whether it was Black Student Union, Muslim Student Association, um, Korean Pop Association, pretty much any event, I was the go-to photographer to take those pictures. And I was contracted for over a hundred gigs over the course of those three years. Wow. And when I went on December 15th to the BJC, which is the Bryce Jordan Center, um, the basketball stadium, but also graduation venue at Penn State, it was to fulfill another photography assignment. Did not know it was going to be my last, but mm. I had basically as an RA was supposed to stay in the residence halls, which is what we're supposed to call the dorms. Um, uh -huh. I'm supposed to stay in the residence halls and wish all of my residents uh, a good semester, good luck on their finals, and have a great winter break. So December 14th, I do that. They all leave. December 15th, I make sure everyone's gone and I myself also have to leave. And I'm not allowed to come back. Once I exit the building, I'm the last person out the building and there's no way to get back inside because they've disabled the card that allows you in the dorms. Mm -hmm. um, so I was the last person out. I had my suitcase with me. I had my camera bag and I had a Greyhound bus to catch at six o'clock. So I wasn't in my normal, like I'm a TA, RA, et cetera. Every day I usually put on a nice outfit, slacks, sweater, nice shoes, et cetera. But mm -hmm. I had a Greyhound bus to catch while so I was just in a hoodie and sweatpants and I had my suitcase next to me. So looking like that, I approached the door of the BJC and I first left my bag maybe 10 feet away and walked in with my camera bag. The campus security told me that she was gonna have to search my camera bag because I wasn't technically allowed to bring bags inside of the BJC, um, mm. but she would make an, an exception. Mm. So she searched it and obviously she didn't find anything alarming, no weapons or anything. Uh, so she let me in. Then I pointed out the fact that I also had a suitcase with me and asked her if I, should, if I could bring it in. She said no. When I asked her why I couldn't bring it in, she said it looks suspicious. I proceeded to explain I'm an RA, you know, the residence halls are closed, I don't have a car, I don't have any friends that live nearby. Pretty much everyone except for the people that were graduating have already left campus, so I have no friends on campus anymore. I have nowhere to take my bag. Um, and then she just looks at me and she says no. And I ask her why again, and she says that I look suspicious. So I explained, okay, you just searched my camera bag. You know I'm a photographer. My client is at gate D. 
I'm at gate A. So wherever she is, she's three gates away from me. Do you know where gate D is? She says, yes. She points me in the direction of gate D. I say, okay, I will be right back. I exit and then I bring my suitcase like a couple of feet closer to the door because it started to lightly drizzle outside and I didn't want my suitcase to be rained on. Mm-hmm. But there is an awning. So I bring my suitcase under the awning and then I sprint to gate D, find my client, come back within five minutes. When I come back, my bag is gone. Mm. I think out of the grace of my heart that this woman has had some sympathy and realized that she was wrongfully denying me the right for my bag to enter. And I thought that she honestly did me a favor and helped me out and brought my bag inside for me. Right. Because Penn State, even though the culture on campus is at a lot of times very um, terse, people can also be extremely nice. Like you can go to sleep you can leave your laptop out overnight next to you and pretty much no one will steal it. People don't really steal on campus, so I trusted. I can leave my bag here, no one's gonna take it, and it'll be here when I come back. So I come back and I ask her if she took my bag inside, and she says, yes, follow me. She then walks me into a small cubicle, and a few minutes later, the official, univer- not university police, the official police police come in. Um, they say, you know, was this your bag, et cetera, et cetera. You know what we found inside of it. And at the time, I was just extremely overwhelmed. I couldn't really comprehend what was going on because the severity of the consequences as compared to what I actually am, who I am and what I do didn't seem to line up. Like, I Mm -hmm. couldn't quite understand that my entire future was now in jeopardy. Mm. Um, It took me a couple months to tell my dad. And at the time, he was extremely upset that I hadn't said anything earlier because he said, for the first time in blatant words, you know, that's racial profiling. I knew that it was wrong and I knew that it was unjust, but he was saying that if I had gotten behind it earlier, I might've been able to get the case thrown out, but I was just so scared and so uncertain of my future mm-hmm. that I I didn't do what I probably should have done. Mm-hmm. Um, so we find out in court, first of all, we hire a lawyer. The lawyer says, you have an amazing case here and great chances of getting it thrown out. They had no warrant for the search. They had no reason to believe that you were dangerous. There's a clear case of profiling and bad police work here. We're gonna fight it. So we fight it. And so many details that strengthen my case come out throughout the trial, but clearly aren't strong enough to sway a judge who's basically a pawn in the system of unjust decisions and inequities. Um, So even if you have a very legitimate case, it's almost impossible to get it thrown out because that would be the judge acknowledging that the government it works for made a mistake. Um, But in the trial, we find out that the officer that searched my bag while I was gone for that brief five minutes, which was the first thing that sort of triggered in my mind where something's wrong because there's no way you could have searched my bag that quick. But we mm. find out that the officer that searched my bag under the guise that I was a potential terrorist had no formal bomb training, didn't call in anyone with bomb training, mm. didn't call in anyone that had any training in a potential terrorist threat, didn't get any sort of authority that could handle the means that they used to justify my search. So although he said that I could potentially be a terrorist, the actions that he took didn't reflect the fact that he actually thought I had a bomb in my bag. Right. And that's completely illegal. You can't use terrorism as the reason to search me when really you just want to get into my bag because you're suspicious that something else other than a bomb might be in it. That is illegal. But because of respectability politics, a lot of people just see, oh, well, they searched her bag and she had weed in it, so she was in the wrong. She deserved what she got. 
mm-hmm. but they're completely skipping past the racial profiling where if I were a white girl, there's no way that that claim could have stuck. If you put a white girl in front of a judge and the officer said, oh, well, she could have been a terrorist, it would be the most absolutely outlandish argument you could possibly think of. Because it's just like, I explained to you everything. I'm an RA, I'm a professional photographer. This is what I'm doing. And yet the white woman still found reason to suspect me for lying or for not telling the truth or for trying to blow up a graduation. And it's just an absolutely absurd thing that ended up getting me two charges, suspended from school. I lost all of my financial aid. I lost my work study. I lost every opportunity to take out a student loan. I lost pretty much all opportunities in getting a scholarship. I had to pay the court $5,000. I had to pay my lawyer $8,000. I'm on house arrest, so I have to pay my house arrest PO $15 for every day that I serve on house arrest. And the bills have racked up to a point where it's absolutely insane for something that is decriminalized in Pennsylvania and that I now have a medical card for and technically is 100% legal. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's... There's so much here. Like, there's so much to ta- tackle here. So much to talk about. I mean, like, I mean, first off, I, when I heard the story, I was like, this I, it infuriated me because, you know, according to society standards, black people aren't supposed to go to college, right? We're not supposed to get a higher education, and when mm-hmm. we do, it's we have to tackle other hurdles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went to predominantly white college as well, uh, and while I was there, it, you know, the, the, the population of black students wavered between 1% and 4%. Mm-hmm. And there's always a strategy. You always have to strategize. There's, there's, it's not just college, right? It's, there's an extra uh, ounce of, of work that needs to be put in, unfortunately, because we're, 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 we're students of colors, black students. And, and I mean, you know, you doing all this work for just organizations alone, right? There, there shouldn't be a need for you to do that. Right. But unfortunately, you have to. Right. You don't necessarily have a choice not to uh, when when things happen. And and then again, just like you, you you did everything right. (laughs) You know, you like everything you did right. Even even though it's just like it's just weed. Right. Like I used to live in Los Angeles. You can literally buy that stuff off of uh, like a market stall, like off the street legally. Right. Like exactly. Yeah. There there are. There are men making millions and millions of dollars in California and Colorado selling this stuff legally. You know, mm-hmm. millions. And, and the and, government made billions in tax dollars from oh, yeah. selling the same thing that I got charged for. Right, right. And I, I it's, like you said, it's decriminalized in, in, in PA. Uh, it makes no sense. It, it genuinely makes no sense. It makes no sense that you have to suffer these consequences. You know, uh, I, I mean, it's it's. <laughs> It's, it's outlandish, you know, and unfortunately, it, it, as, as, as outlandish as all this sounds, it makes sense, unfortunately, right? Like, it, yeah. it's not too far from the realm of reality. Uh, again, like, I've heard stories, you know, similar to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, things similar to that have happened to me, you know, and, and it's, 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 it's just absolutely heartbreaking every time it comes out. Because again, like, you know, we did something, you did something that we're not really supposed to, according to the American mythos. We went to college, we got a higher education, we got out of the inner city, which which uh, a lot of people see as impossible, right? We, we got these scholarships and grants and, 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 mm-hmm. and became RAs, TAs, and, and I mean, you, you like, like it, it, make, it makes no sense. Um, yeah, well, I mean, have, have you been getting support from, I guess, students at Penn State? Have you been getting support from people like student i mean I've, I've been following the uh the, the gofundme and it's, it's been pretty lit uh but like how, how have you have you been getting support but also have you been getting naysayers have you been getting like a opposition I yeah mean, like, um yeah. i've been getting probably so there's been waves of support where you know different people from different circles share it so then there might be a burst of people you know like a camp counselor shared it so then a bunch of camp friends commented but the very first people to support it 
were the people that I went to Penn State with that knew that I made enormous waves in the three years that I was there. And of course, know that I smoke weed. All of us do. It's like, it's college, it's 2020. More than 50% of college students self-report that they've used marijuana. It's something that is very like in the culture of millennials to this day, pretty much everyone smokes marijuana. Um, so the first wave of support that I got were from people that were like, wow, that could have been any single one of us because mm -hmm. we all have done this. And it's just, you don't deserve to lose everything especially because of what you've done for the university and what you've done for students that haven't even gotten to Penn State yet. Like mm -hmm. I'm a firm believer that some of the changes, even very, very small changes that I was able to make while I was there will affect students that have yet to even go to Penn State. And so I sat on this story for a really long time, but I woke up the other day and I wanted to speak on it because of the environment that unfortunately George Floyd's death has created. Mm. But people are finally listening and people are helping and voices are being amplified, voices that need to be heard but wouldn't have been heard otherwise. So I just took this opportunity to say something. Um, mm. And yet Penn State supported. Two days later, after 15,000 people commented, engaged on the Instagram post, I finally started getting the haters. Um, the people saying it was my fault, that a suitcase is obviously very suspicious. Um, people saying that it was my fault for having marijuana. People that don't understand that obviously, yes, I broke the law, I had marijuana when I didn't have my medical card. The police would not have known that unless they had racial, racially profiled me in the first place. People yep. that skip over the argument that they don't understand and try to find, you know, where you're at fault. So I haven't, you know, internalized or I've tried my best not to internalize any of those comments because it really comes down to a lack of understanding. Um, but I've also had people reply to the ignorant comments in, in my favor um, and just try to explain to these people, which obviously never works. Someone that goes out of their way to comment on a social media post is not in the mind space to learn or to change. They're just mm -hmm. there to, to speak. Um, so yeah, I, if anything, Penn State has taught me how to choose my battles and when a conversation is worth having and when it's just not going to be productive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, one. I mean, one of the things that you brought up the the, the bomb, like quote unquote scare, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And the fact that the, the 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 individual who searched your suitcase didn't even have bomb training. I don't know if this is just a thing that cops do, but I was I had <laughs> this is crazy. I was at a party uh, maybe like a year or two ago, black party in um, I guess the black area of Boston, and. Mm -hmm the cops showed up and they were like, you have to shut this party down. We got a bomb threat. And it was just two normal cops, right? Like, I don't know if that's something that they do in order to break the law, I guess, legally, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, it's like a legal scapegoat. Yeah, yeah. It's the yeah. only thing that can actually justify what they're doing because they know that they need some sort of legal excuse to cover their behind when they get asked, why did you think this was okay to do? Right, right, right. I, and it, it's it's just, it's it's the funniest thing because obviously these dudes don't have bomb training. It's very obvious. Like, yeah. they're like these fat, greasy, sweaty dudes who can't like, <laughs> like, like open the suitcase properly. Like it's, it's and it's it's just troubling. And you know, it, it's it's troubling to, cause you know, I, I, you know, we, my producer and I look through some of the comments on your post and it's troubling to see the opposition. Uh, like it, it's, it's, it's so very, it's it's very much a problem right like maybe like toss out the race for a second it's it, there's still still a, there's still a problem with over policing right mm -hmm. like it's just a suitcase it's just a suitcase it's just a student <laughs> you know at, at a college like come on now you don't need to go all this way for what you know yeah uh, and that's that's a really good point because you're saying toss out the race and those are the comments that are the most frustrating to me where people say I'm white, and if this happened to me, I wouldn't be getting donations. Or I'm white, if this happened to me, mm -hmm. I would be blamed for being stupid. And they don't have the capacity to see that if you were white, this would not have happened to you. 
that mm. officer would not have thought that you had the capability of being a terrorist. They would not right. have thought that you had the potential of having a bomb in your suitcase after just explaining to them why you had the suitcase in the first place. Right, right. And you know what, what was interesting? You brought up the point that today you were dressed, or this, this the day that this happened, you were dressed in like a hoodie, right? Mm-hmm. Where typically you're dressed, you know, slacks and, and a sweater and just you know nicer right and mm-hmm. that's also a conversation to have just what we wear and how people perceive us by that right mm-hmm. and it's 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 like a chess game i mean i'm sure white people don't necessarily have to think about that like what mm-hmm. what where can i go and wear a hoodie and be safe that's always yeah. something to think about right and 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 you know again i i also went to a predominantly white college and that's something that i i realized right and i experimented with that concept a little bit too i i when i, I there was a, a few times i'd go to the financial aid office and i would purposely wear a hoodie to see what kind of treatment i would receive and mm-hmm. it was obviously worse you know mm-hmm. and then i would be like oh well my gpa is 3.9 and their their eyes would light up and it would, it would be, you know a whole, yeah a whole shift but it that that is something again like as a as a as a black student or just a, a, a poc student uh there are there are hurdles that you have to take yeah this probably wouldn't have happened if you were a white student and, and yeah. if it did, you definitely wouldn't receive the same consequence. Yeah. Right? Because, it's, yeah. I was just going to expound on what I was wearing. The other thing that clearly shows the police work was sloppy was that in the police report, the woman who reported me, reported me, this is her exact description of me, a skinny black female acting suspiciously. Hmm. So say that you did think that I had a bomb. And yes, I understand that Penn State is 75% white, so there's not gonna be many black people at the graduation. But you're looking for someone who is a potential terrorist. And the only description you're able to provide is that I'm skinny, I'm black, and I'm a female. Mm -hmm. And the officer didn't ask for any clarifying information. No, what is she wearing? No, you know, are there any identifiable marks? Nothing no further questions he took that and he used it as his circumstances to search my suitcase Mm -hmm. but if you look like they didn't even try to look for me there was no search they just waited in an empty room with my suitcase after they found the drugs and that was that but he didn't dispatch anyone to look for the person that might have left this bag there was no legitimate action taken on the grounds that i was indeed a danger Mm. and it's just like that that description if instead she had said oh like a skinny white girl with long blonde hair left this suitcase here i don't think the cops would have jumped and been like oh my god we need to search it right now right right or not even just a skinny white girl just a skinny girl you know like yeah you know, skinny exactly that's the thing is exactly. that in, in this country that the word black means dangerous right yeah i mean amy cooper or um, potential to be a danger even. right the right potential that's inherent in the skin tone Right, right. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've seen the Amy Cooper video, the the uh, white woman who called the police on the, on the uh, Black Bird Watcher mm-hmm. uh, in Central Park. And one thing that really hit me hard was the fact that she was like, "I'm going to call the police and tell them that a black man is attacking me." Right. Exactly. The the distortion of the truth. Right, right, right. And all you have to say is "black man," and people automatically mm-hmm. just assume that this is a dangerous individual. This individual mm-hmm. is out to harm. He doesn't know better. Uh, he's aggressive, mm-hmm. and like that's 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 the crazy part about this. Like, again, there. First off, there shouldn't have to be a conversation about race, right? Like mm-hmm. that that sh- that shouldn't have been should have been brought up. That that shouldn't have been in the report at all, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact that it was automatically just pushes the fact that this is in fact racial profiling, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. It's, jeez. Penn State has a bad history of that. I have a friend, his name is Davon, mm. and he applied for a job at one of the most prominent hookah lounges on campus. It's right off of College Ave. Mm. And he used his name, Davon, and he was denied the job. The very next day, he submitted the same exact application, but he used the name Dave, mm. and he was given the job. Which goes to show that they didn't even look past his name. Because right, they would right. have realized that it was an identical resume. They saw yeah. his name, they tossed it out. Didn't even give him the opportunity to get the job. And that's the environment in which I was arrested. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, just the name thing alone. I mean, I, I know that, uh, obviously I know that's a, that's a thing with jobs and Airbnb, for example, uh, Airbnb owners are allowed to, uh, I guess, reject you without really any cause. And they, mm-hmm. there was a study done that was found that people with quote unquote black sounding names were rejected more so that more, more often than people who didn't, um, you know, I'm, I, I, I have, I, I recognize that I have, in a weird way, I have a privilege that my name is like the whitest name you could think of. Evan McDonald, right? I'm <laughs> super white. I'm dark skin as hell. Like, like it's, it's, it, it works. My parents were smart. They were like, yo, this kid's getting the job. Uh, it really hasn't worked out anyway. But, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is true. Like, just, just the fact that your name could be black is is it, it hurts you um and I, yeah. I'm, I'm just a little curious about the experience at penn state um as being a black student i mean you know i, I I'm, I'm sure that you know you and i share a lot in in our experiences i'm sure that black students who go to predominantly white institutions just just college in general also deal with a lot of stuff that that we deal with but i'm just curious because penn state is a little different i went to emerson college in boston which you know boston mm-hmm. is a it's it's kind of liberal it's also like really racist but like at least it's yeah it's it's a weird combination of both of those things right right so so Mm -hmm. and and emerson college is you know super liberal school uh Mm -hmm. super lgbtq friendly like probably one of the most queer friendly colleges in the nation and i Mm -hmm. had my issues i'm super curious about i guess some of the issues and some of the things obviously this is a huge issue uh but some of the things that you experienced as a student of color going to i mean penn state which as we know isn't as progressive as, as say this, I mean, you talked a little bit about the Nazi party, which I'm still like, like kind of <laughs> trying to comprehend yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, and just blatant, not like they were posters. It wasn't supposed to be a hidden, like they were publicly neo-Nazi-ing it up. Um, my experience at Penn State as a student of color, as I said, my freshman year, Donald Trump was elected, which mm. just cultivated and just probably very polarized environment from the beginning um so and then my sophomore year was when the Kaepernick situation happened so some experiences that I've had maybe and when I was taking an English class it's very rare that you get a small class when you're only a sophomore um, Mm -hmm. at Penn State but for some reason I ended up in this mandatory English 15 class and there was only about 15 students in it four rows of desks um you know not very many students at all and we were given the assignment to just choose any topic one topic anything in the world something that you're passionate about and then the next day in class we were going to share our topics and we were going to give peer constructive criticism but it had to be constructive that was the only rule in place so the next day comes and we're ready to present our ideas and i am sitting in the back row i'm one of the last kids to present the very first row two out of maybe five kids that were sitting in that row chose to do their presentation on why kaepernick shouldn't kneel during football the first person's reason was because there are six other days out of the week that you could protest Hmm. The second person reason, the second person's reason was because it was disrespectful to America. Now we reached the second row of students. Two more students chose the reason, chose to write about why Kaepernick should not kneel on Sundays during football. So that's four students out of like 15. And I already went through this whole two semesters of Donald Trump in that conversation. And I'm sitting in this room feeling slightly overwhelmed and bewildered by the mm-hmm. fact that that is what you chose to write about and that it was such a general consensus that not a single person said anything. No students, not even my professor. So I just left class. I left class. And mm-hmm. the next day I went to my professor's office hours And I was like, hey, as the professor, I feel like it is your duty to speak up in class when we're offering constructive criticism and someone's opinion is sort of blatantly affecting the livelihood of two students in your class. 
Like mm. you didn't have to tell them that they were wrong, but you could have at least engaged them in some sort of dialogue to push them in a, a direction where they could, you know, think about something that they hadn't thought about before. Mm-hmm. And this man literally starts crying in front of me because mm-hmm. he's a gay white man. And he's like, yeah, when you left class, I felt extremely guilty because I know what it feels like to not be stood up for, yet I still didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And then I walked out of his office hours because I was like, man, I really didn't come here for you to cry and feel sorry. I came here for you to like have some sort of resolution. Mm-hmm. And it, I understand that you might internally have made some sort of deal with yourself for next time you will say something, but you really did nothing to comfort me in this moment and reassure me that classes can be a safe enough space for me to really feel like I can speak up and not have everybody silent um, and just unsupportive. Mm -hmm. So there's been situations like that where students have said blatantly factually wrong things and I've watched the administration say nothing in the moment and just let it go. And Mm. I'm in the major where I'm a communications arts and science major, which is basically probably one of the most liberal majors you can be in in a college. So I've always had progressive professors that Mm. will stand up and, you know, challenge students when they say something that's just like not necessarily the most productive thing to believe in. But when you're taking gen eds, professors are too scared to do that and they just you know mm-hmm. they don't want to get political but they don't understand that what's politics to them is just my livelihood it's just my life right i mean so, i i'm sure i mean i've gotten in a couple internet arguments which i know i shouldn't have but it always falls back to politics right republican versus mm-hmm. democrat and the thing is my life your life our lives aren't politics it's, yeah. it's a moral issue it's a moral based issue and you know it, that that's very interesting and you know you said that the professors you think the professors are scared to to speak out um mm-hmm. do you think some of the professors are like actually they like believe it but they're afraid to actually no that's no? the problem i don't i can see in their face and their discomfort that they don't believe it and they don't mm. agree but at the same time they don't have the like they don't understand the use of their privilege and the power in just getting past their discomfort for the sake of the environment that they're supposed to be protecting mm. you know they're so focused on their emotional situation that they don't have the skills and the understanding to get past that and do something and it's just like it's like crippling immobilizing white guilt yeah yeah i mean so do you think because this has been a conversation i've had with you know uh plenty of black students do you think that the solution not not saying there's a one-all solution but do you think that one way to i guess remedy this issue is to install some type of diversity inclusion training would it be you know creating some type of coalition between i guess POC and black students and professors bring, or, you know, should we bring in more black professors? I mean, what do you think is kind of a, a, a step in the right direction in, I guess, at least tackling this issue with professors not speaking up or not defending or not yeah. guess, teaching, right? Well, the, so that's pretty much the work that I did for the PRCC during my junior year. The mm-hmm. I was creating a series of stop motions that were using clay and different colors to subtly describe the race relations at Penn State because I figured, you know, when white people see that race is the topic, they immediately like go to their narrative and stop listening sometimes. So let me use clay, let me use arbitrary colors, and let me use them to represent diversity statistics and inclusion. So I pretty much got a hundred clay balls and I made, you know, if it's 4% African-American, four of them are red, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the video was going to show that you can't have inclusion if at the end of the day, you know, chalk the video, I'm just gonna explain this concept without trying to use the analogy of the clay. Mm -hmm. Diversity and inclusion is only possible if you're actually committing to diversifying the student body. Mm -hmm. Because if you try to advocate for inclusion, yet 
for the past 30 years, the black population at Penn State has remained at 4.3%. You're basically forcing black people to be comfortable in an environment that's made for whites. Mm -hmm. You know, inclusion can't be had until the diversity statistics are an actual reflection of the demographics in the United States. In the United States, black people are about 14%. So once mm -hmm. Penn State becomes 14% black, then we can truly start the conversation of inclusion. But it just isn't possible to have diversity as something that really is supposed to make the university seem more attractive to its white students. Mm -hmm. You know, white people like seeing, oh, there's diversity. Oh, I get to learn things because there's other cultures that I don't know here. Mm -hmm. But it, it isn't good for the people that, you know, are basically being taken advantage of because they are the diversity, yet there's nothing at Penn State for them. Mm -hmm. You know, when people say Penn State, you're not what they're thinking of. They're thinking of frat boys and football and, you know, sororities and right, Thon. Right. Thon is this, oh, I don't even want to get into that whole <laughs> conversation. But, you know, when people say Penn State the same way when people say an American, they're thinking of a white man. Right. They think of the white man and the picket fence and the dog and the hot dogs and yeah, that, that exactly. whole situation. I mean, it's, you know, I think another interesting conversation is the the topic of exploitation, right? Uh, exploiting black faces, black and brown faces. I, um, you know, do you think that, I, I guess through a lot of the stuff that you've done, uh, the, the programs, the, the, the creative works, do you think that, I mean, have you gotten a backlash from students because of that work from faculty? Or do you think that they've supported or that they've been supporting it, or do you think that like it it, it, it kind of falls in line with this exploitative um, element? Because at Emerson College, for example, uh, there was a black student union. I mean, there was a black student union. There were you know there was a, a black student center for students of color to, to I guess have a safe space between classes, such as Penn State. Um, and what I saw was that a lot of the black programs that were put on by the uh, POC and black students students of color, uh, they were exploited by the college. When we put these shows on, the college would invite black high school kids to come over and mm -hmm. view these events as a yeah, way of being like, hey, that. listen, we have black kids. Uh, so yeah. you said you have it. Do, 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 like, I don't know. I, I guess I want to pick your brain on that and just, like, you know, hear about some of your experiences and just yeah, like, your, your take had... on it. And like, should you should you do that? Right. Like, should you put on these programs if it's creating I guess if 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 it's it's if it's used as a lure, right? Yeah, it's distorting the reality that you're like they're coming to hype you up, saying you know these people are here for you. But in reality, on a day to day basis, when you're going to class and you're on campus, you're not seeing those people. It's right. not a lit rally. It's not like you know that's something that was created just to be a spectacle. It wasn't mm -hmm. something that is actually a reality on campus every day. That thing, like, yes, Black Student Union is there for you, but it's not always going to be. So at Penn State, we have an organization called SMART, and they have a day called, like, Achievers Day or something. Mm -hmm. And it's when Black students that are in high school and are considering coming to Penn State come to Penn State. And we put on one of those pep rallies that I helped organize for them. Um, and we have all of the D9, the Greeks come and stroll for them. And we have, you know, different POC organizations come and present maybe a dance or just what their organization is about. And, but when you come to Penn State, there's no like, that's the last time that you get that. When you're mm -hmm. a freshman at Penn State, it's not like there's another pep rally and it's like, oh yeah, be a part of us. No, you're just there and you have to find all of that stuff for yourself. Mm -hmm. I remember one of my, she was my friend, but after I criticized her, she sort of stopped liking me. She was a photographer um, and she photographed Thon, which is basically this big event that the white Penn State puts on to feel better about themselves. And they raise like tens of millions of dollars wow. for students in Pennsylvania that have cancer. Mm -hmm. um, it's getting a lot of 
black because at the same time they're like buying t-shirts from indonesia and toys from indonesia mm. and all of these things from factories that at the same time are giving brown kids cancer mm -hmm. so it's a very hypocritical thing that's really just like a white savior complex right. um, but regardless of that she was taking pictures at thon and she was saying that she intentionally takes pictures of black people at thon because there's not many of them and then I was trying to explain to her where when you're a photographer and your photographs are published in like Penn State's official magazines and you go out of your way to take pictures of brown and black bodies, you're distorting the reality that prospective students see because when pr prospective students get that pamphlet and they see a black person on the cover or they see maybe there's 20 faces in the pamphlet and 10 of them are black because the photographer intentionally sought out black faces to put in the pamphlet, they're subconsciously thinking, oh, when I go to Penn State, five out of 10 of the black, or 10 out of 20 of the faces that I see are gonna be black faces. And right. so they distort the pamphlets and the things that they send to prospective students by increasing the, the diversity in them, even though when you're on campus, and you have a class of 40 students, you're the only black person in the class. Mm -hmm. And she was saying, no, that's not my intention. And I was saying, it's not your intention, but it's what you're doing. And she just couldn't quite comprehend why she was trying to do something good, but it was actually having a negative effect. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't think that we should present the university as something it's not by doing these events for prospective students or by distorting diversity statistics. Um, Penn State also distorts the diversity st statistics because they have branch campuses and they report that the university diversity statistics are one number when it's actually a composite number of their branch campuses. So mm. say Penn State Harrisburg has 12% African-Americans, they consider that 12% when they're uh, presenting the diversity statistics for Penn State, Maine, even though it's a different campus. Wow. So like, there's just so many small manipulative things that they mm -hmm. do to try to increase their diversity without actually bettering the environment on campus for the students that they're lowering. Wow. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I mean, it does. It does. I mean, <laughs> what, what's crazy is like, if you need to fudge the numbers, why not just actually work to change them? You know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And it's, it's really, if your university is 77% white, yet America is really only 50 something percent white, it can't help but be blatantly obvious that something is wrong with your admissions mm -hmm. you know like there's clear favoritism and i know that if you're a penn state student and you have a family member who's also a penn state student your chances in being accepted increase tenfold so whenever that argument is brought up they say that that's the reason because penn state started when you know black students really weren't even allowed to go to college mm -hmm. So the grandfather rule distorts the diversity, oh. but it's all bullshit. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's also I remember I was I was in a uh, meeting with a black a bunch of black alum at Emerson, and there was a conversation about tuition, right, and about how you can't bring a lot of these black students to this school because unfortunately it's an expensive school. And I know Penn State is uh, probably significantly cheaper than a private institution, mm -hmm. um, but it's still a lot of money. Like it's 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 that's like how much I, what is it like 20 grand a semester or something like that that's, that's yeah and that's, that's just if you're in state if you're right. out of state it's like 50 40. right right and and that's a lot of money and the thing is a lot of these schools they have just millions of dollars just tossed around that that could mm -hmm. that's a tuition for five students of color mm -hmm. right and that's also a conversation that needs to be had because yeah a lot of people are grandfathered in a lot of white students are grandfathered in sure but the thing is you have to also understand that these students can also pay the tuition because the fine because economically they've been grandfathered in to better uh financial standing than a lot of black students right yeah um 
I don't know too many black students whose parents have been able to pay for their t- college tuition completely out of their own wallet, yeah. right? They need yeah. scholarships, loans, grants, uh, what have you. Uh, I, I honestly, I think maybe every black college student I know has to take out some type of loan. I was going to say, I don't think I know any black <laughs> college students, or at least they might just not want to admit it. But like, yeah. from the ones that I know well enough, not a single one of them is graduating without a lot of loans. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the Obamas are good. But like, other than that, <laughs> like, I, I, I know nobody. And like, the thing is, how do we fix that? You get these colleges that make millions of dollars. I mean, Penn State has a huge football division. Like this coaches make millions of dollars just take a take a mill from each of their mm-hmm. salaries and you could bring in a substantial amount of black students right and mm-hmm. it, emerson's the same way emerson i believe just bought uh an entire college in in, in uh, vermont marlboro college they just bought it yeah uh for millions of dollars that's you know just invest a little bit of that a little bit of that in your in in in, in just bringing a, uh, a diverse group of students in like that's that's a small solution that could go a long yeah. way it could you know diminish some of these conversations won't get rid of these conversations but it will yeah. certainly help these conversations move forward um i mean it's it's just like absolutely amazing and 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 terrifying that the same things that you are saying are the same things that i have heard multiple times at different schools right like for years all, too. for years for decades yeah. this conversation yeah. pretty much since black people have been allowed to go to university we've yeah. been having the same conversation yeah same conversation same jokes even like i'm sure you know you walk in a room with a black person at penn state you automatically know them right like they're you yeah automatically immediately kid. i'm like <laughs> oh lit you're in my class yeah Great. yeah 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 like that's, that's <laughs> Like I feel like I know every black student at at the college, right? Like I feel yeah. like I mean that that's a thing. I, I talk to people at BU, same thing. I've had friends at Rutgers. It's a little different because Rutgers is a little more diverse, but like mm-hmm. similar, semi similar situation. Um, and it's 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 just so like just it 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 can feel overwhelming, like you said. You know, like there there's this overwhelming element to it. Um, I I recorded a I produced a documentary and I found myself in um some archival offices there's a documentary about colleges and black student colleges and like you said this has been going on for decades I mean these the same demands that we're asking for now the same things that have been happening to us now have been happening to us since (laughs) student black students were allowed to go to white colleges um I mean do you think that like I mean now is a very interesting time things are crazy right now but do you think that there is going to be a change in in these demands, do you think we will somehow find what we want in these colleges? Uh, that question is like, for in order for us to get what we want, like it's completely dependent upon the white people in power. Mm-hmm. So until they can recognize that pretty much everything that they know and stand for is wrong, and have the desire to change it, nothing is going to change. But the problem mm-hmm. is that, so the president of my university, his name is President Eric Barron. Mm-hmm. And they are under so much scrutiny from their alumni that they don't really have the power to do anything. The same way where the president can't really do anything mm-hmm. without the permission of Congress, like the university really is the history is it's it's its history and so the same year that i was arrested uh one of our football players got a letter in the mail from an alumni who was saying that they were absolutely disgraced by the nfl nowadays because Mm -hmm. all of the um like all of the linemen have long dreadlocks and whenever someone stores a cut touchdown they do a celebration dance and it's just like hooliganism that uh, they don't support even though they love the sport and so it's not only what your university is willing to do but what they can get away with without losing all of the support of everyone that came before them so President Eric Barron, in response to the Twitter trend of screenshotting students' racist tweets and mm. sending them to their university, basically responded that 
because of the First Amendment and the right to free speech, he wasn't allowed to sanction any, any of the students for their racism. But at the same time, it's in the code of conduct that they don't tolerate hate speech, and which makes racism grounds enough to sanction the students. But there's mm -hmm. a hypocrisy where things are written into their laws, but at the same time aren't acted upon because of the fear of backlash of people that believe, you know, First Amendment rights, Penn State stands for this, this isn't PSU, the, you know, freedom of speech, et cetera, et cetera. And it becomes impossible to do the things that you know were right just because you pretty much won't exist as you are anymore. You'll be a completely different entity. If mm. Penn State is no longer 77% white, Penn State is no longer Penn State. Mm. Mm. And that's what we're working with right now. That's the big struggle. Right, right. People are just afraid of change. That's, that's People are afraid of change. Huge thing. Yeah. Um, I, and you know, I, I, I don't talked about it briefly, um, but just the the opposition saying black privilege, right? Like mm -hmm. these conversations that we're allowed to have, these programs we're allowed to put on. I mean, the fact that you, you you've been doing what you've been doing. Uh, people have, you know, there have been people saying, oh, black privilege. I couldn't do this as a white person. Like I couldn't have garnered this type of money if I was a white person in the same situation. And, mm -hmm. you know, obviously the thing is you want to be in this situation, but yeah. what do you have to say to that? Like, do you think that there is a black privilege? Do you think that like, because there is white guilt that we, like we benefit from that in, 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 in a weird way? Like, yeah, I, I'm just, I want to know your. Yeah, so I definitely think that um, in the past couple of months, people have been able to benefit from white guilt. But mm. the thing about privilege is that it's systematic. You can't have privilege unless it is systematically advantaging you in some way. So me getting donations to go to my, to go to college isn't systematically putting me in a position to have any power over anyone else. So mm -hmm. no, I don't believe that there's black privilege because at the same time, my blackness is one of the sole reasons that one, I've been put in this compromised position, but also one of the only things that truly keeps me from having equitable resources and um, a fair shot at the same future that a white person may have. Mm. So yeah, because I'm black, people have sympathy for me, but sympathy isn't privilege. Sympathy is the result of people recognizing that I'm in a position that I should not be in in the first place, you know? And I think that honestly, the people that believe in black privilege are a little bit jealous that white privilege isn't as powerful as it used to be that mm. black people are getting the opportunities and the respect and the sympathy from people that they've deserved for the past forever, literally forever. Um, or for as long as African-American has been a concept, we've been owed some sort of anything. We've mm -hmm. literally built this country for nothing. Mm. And there's no calculation to understand the amount of reparations and aid that is necessary for getting black people the spot that they deserve. Mm -hmm. There's never probably going to be anything that even is legitimately dubbed as black privileged because the wealth gap and the power gap that's been perpetuated over years of just time grows exponentially. With every generation, that gap gets bigger because black people still need help and white people still get handouts. Mm -hmm. The government giving billion dollar bailouts to big corporations, but only a $1,200 stimulus check to people that, you know, are the bulk of their work, of the bulk of their labor force. It's just a ridiculous amount of hypocrisy that's built into how we run as a nation. Mm -hmm. And as I said, if that's not how America runs, it's not America anymore. Right. There's just things that are so systematic where if they're no longer what we're doing, you know, we can't really call ourselves America, America, which is why people are so 
which is why people that are so patriotic are so reluctant to change because the America that they know isn't the America that we need to become in order to benefit minorities. Mm-hmm. That was Ruby Johnston. <laughs> yeah, I hope you all enjoyed the episode. Again, if you want to support Ruby, I will be posting links to their GoFundMe and social media and Cash App and Venmo and all that stuff in the description below. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you didn't, uh, definitely reach out to me. If you did, also reach out to me. Please subscribe. Please like. Please do whatever to show you love. Um, yeah, we'll be back on Thursday with the second part of this conversation. I will see y'all. Peace.